The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode 145. Captain DeBridge. Spock here. Make yourself. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Star Trek Discovery first season episode, The Wolf Inside. And joining me today on the panel are Father Cory Stika. Hi, Father Cory. How's it going? Very well, thanks. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Uh, folks, if you've not yet done so, please remember to subscribe to The Secrets of Star Trek in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or at the SQPN YouTube channel, where you should make sure to hit the bell to get notifications. So, yes, we are talking about The Wolf Inside. This is the first season of Discovery, the second half, so the part where they have traveled to the Mirror Universe. And this is the second episode of that part of the of the season. This is what we pretty much agree. This is when Discovery started to get good, <laughs> as opposed to the <laughs> At least first well, half of the season. <laughs> I, I would say got more interesting. Yeah, yeah, there we go. There we go. It got better. Uh got better. So... uh the, the the short form, the synopsis of this episode, they're still stranded in the Mirror Universe. Burnham is on the Shenzhou, the Mirror version of the Shenzhou, as captain. She's trying to, she's given an order to wipe out a group of rebels uh, the, the against the Terran Empire. And she's trying to find a way to save them while not blowing her cover as the daughter of the Terran Emperor. And meanwhile, Ash Tyler is having a flashback emergence Manchurian candidate issues <laughs> mm-hmm. of his own, uh, which may jeopardize everything. Also, they have Stamets is in a compromised state because he's crazy with spore activity in his brain. Yes. And the reason that Burnham and Ash and Lorca are on the Shinzu is because they need to get information out of the Terran Empire's computer core about how the how the Defiant ended up in the mirror universe so they can try to right. find a way back to their own universe. Right. And Lorca is in a torture box. Yes. And this is not the Deep Space Nine Defiant, but an older Starfleet vessel, of course. This is, because this is referring back to the TOS episode, Tholian Web, and then the Enterprise mirror universe episode. Yes, the, the Enterprise series. Yes, that's right. So the one of the behind-the-scenes bits that to talk about just before we get into things is the decision that the Terran Empire rebellion would consist of the Endorians, Tellarites, Vulcans, and Klingons was made because, with the exception of the Klingons, those were three of the four founding members of the United Federation of Planets in the Prime Universe with the humans from Earth. And as a result, they, as they said, as, like, I think Ted Sullivan, who was the co-executive producer, said, it seemed to make sense that they represent a union of hope in the mirror universe. So the same sorts of factors that bring... That that allowed them to come together in uh, the prime universe, 
are what bring them together in the mirror universe, I guess is what he's saying. Yeah, and it kind of makes sense. It's like, it's this is effectively the Federation with the Klingons and Earth swapped for the leadership right. role. Although it's not entirely consistent with the Mirror Mirror episode of the original series because there were Vulcans serving on the Enterprise in that, including Mr. Spock with his goatee. Mm-hmm. Yes, which is mirrored, uh, so to speak, in this yep. one by Sarek having a goatee, yep. which I think was a very nice, nice. Uh, touch. Yeah. So we open on an absurdly dense space field, uh, space debris field. <laughs> yes, again. <laughs> as always in this episode. Yes. Yep. Yeah, this series always, well, a lot of Star Trek always has, the things are way too close together in space. This should be much more room. Uh, yeah, Burnham's captain. She has uh, basically put down a, an attempt to, uh, attempted coup, killed a guy, and uh, thus solidified her position. And she's making this log, this log entry about how it's going. Um, and, you know, talks about things like how even the light in this universe is different. And uh, it turns out the mirror Saru is her personal slave. Right. Um, and she n- notes that how pretending to be like the Terrans is slowly changing her, taxing her empathy. And, and she says it's getting easier to pass as one of them, which is interesting. Right. Well, uh, oh, just real quick, I want to talk about uh, the light. Yeah. That actually is significant later on. Yeah, because uh, we find out that the light in the mirror universe actually is different. It's not just it seems like it's lost its brilliance. It actually is darker in general in the mirror universe. And that's why Lorca has the issue with his eyes, as right. all Terrans do, although we don't see the Empress, Emperor Giorgio later on. They aren't showing her doing the eye drops. But right. we find out that is actually a trait of a Terran who comes over to Prime Universe is that the light affects them because it's so much brighter in the Prime Universe. Right. One thing that I was thinking about through this sequence is you really have to give Discovery credit for its visual design. It's very mm-hmm. cinematically shot. Mm. It, is, yes. it, is, it is visually much more, even though the, the plotting and so forth is not as good as other Star Trek series is, or at least as some of them. Mm-hmm. Cinematically, this is gorgeous. Oh, yeah, And yes. it's, it's, it's the, the shift in what a televisual production can be today compared to the 1990s, let's say, or the 1980s. It's just head and shoulders above that. So it really is gorgeous to look at. That's oh, yeah. true. Yeah, compared Enterprise to this, and it's, it's a whole different ball game. Yeah. One thing that I found that in this opening sequence we're talking about that I, I thought was stupid was you know, Mirror Saru is Burnham's servant, and she says to him, what's your name? And he says, a slave has no name. And it's like, that's stupid. You, <laughs> clearly, clearly, the writers have no understanding. I mean, they want to portray slavery as a bad thing, which it is, yes, mm-hmm. but you want to understand the thing you're criticizing, unless you're following the advice of Steve Martin's grandmother's song, criticize things you don't know about because (laughs) because of course slaves have names they have always had names throughout human history because if you've got more than one of them you need to be able to tell which slave what to what you want that slave to do better than hey you (laughs) yeah Yeah. often often the slave i mean if you've got 10 slaves and you say slave do this well how do they know which one is supposed to do it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so, you know, frequently the masters would pick the names of the slaves, like in ancient Greece mm-hmm. in the first century, 
Christos was a common slave name because it meant useful. Mm. And there's actually a place in the New Testament. Now, Christos also was just a normal word in Greek. It wasn't just a slave name. It was also a normal word that just meant useful. And Paul, at one point in his letters, plays does a play on words, or what looks to me like a play on words. It's often translated in English as, because he's talking about, do I want to die and go to heaven and be with Christ, or do I want to stay here and do ministry on earth? And he says, for me to live is, the way it's commonly translated, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And what does it mean to say to live is Christ? Well, it looks like a play on words. To live is Christos is what he means when he what he writes is Christos, and mm. he means to live is useful, but to die would be to gain. Interesting. Right. And in useful any event, would come across as being in the context to be a useful, slave for Christ, useful yep. to Christ. Yeah, yeah. So, in any event, slaves have names. Try to understand the thing you're criticizing a little bit. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, you, you, all, you just go back to Alex Haley's roots in you know the whole Kuntakite and Tobe, Toby. You know the I think it was Toby, but yeah. uh, the the name and that whole scene. If you're at all familiar with you know roots, which you should be if you're criticizing, say, American slavery, mm-hmm. you'd you'd see that. Yeah, it is kind of dumb to, yeah. that they wouldn't have a name I mean, for it. Even just to be able to say, I am slave number one, two, three, four, five. That's <laughs> yes. my name. Slave number yeah. one, two, three, four, five is my name. Yeah, it, and, I get and, that. It, and it applies even more broadly than just slavery. I mean, the same thing would happen with household servants. If you watch upstairs, downstairs. In the first season of that, there's a servant coming on board staff who has kind of a fantasy life about being rich and famous, and she introduces herself as Clemence du something or other, some really Mm -hmm. exotic-sounding French name. And she's told immediately, okay, that's not an appropriate name for a servant. You're going to be Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. But one thing I did like about this, though, is because Burnham has to let Saru do things for her. Like, essentially, he does—he bathes her. Right. And he brings her food and stuff like that. And this is really creeping her out. And she has to go along with it. And she's afraid of being corrupted by this. I, I've had—not afraid of being corrupted by it, but the—I've had a similar experience because I tend to be very self-sufficient. I do mm-hmm. not like imposing on others. I want to be as little bother as possible to right. other people. And so uh, for a number of years, I took train trips across the country, mm-hmm. and I would get on the train, and I would immediately arrange the sleeping compartment the way I wanted it. I would put the beds down. I would put my luggage on the top bed. They would stay that way for the rest of the voyage. I did not want the steward coming in and putting them up and down and turning them into chairs instead of beds and things like that. I didn't want the steward turning down my bed at night. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't want any of that because I didn't want to be a bother. But what I realized, and it was very uncomfortable for me to let a steward do something that I'm perfectly capable of doing Mm -hmm. in this personal space. But I eventually realized this is how they earn their tips. Yeah. They, they, mm-hmm. they want to do things so that they can get a bigger tip. And so I found ways to let them do things for me like, okay, maybe I'll, I'll eat in my sleeping compartment and they can go you know, bring the meal on a tray or something. But So I found a way to compromise to get them what they wanted without, without having right. them do everything for me, which I just was right. not comfortable with. Right, right. 
So th- that there actually was a funny behind the scenes thing with the uh, 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 what's the name Jones, um, the actor who Doug plays Saru. Yeah, he he actually talked about how he he kind of made uh, the, the actress very uncomfortable by having to do all these things for her, and she was like she was like kind of creeped out by him doing these. Things. He was like, oh, I took great pleasure in, in doing these things because <laughs> it really creeped her out. Uh, she was really uncomfortable with me serving her. But it's it's that interesting. Like here's her captain essentially, and who mm-hmm. used to be her your her crewmate now a slave, and I you, you really do feel that creepy. Like wow, that's really weird, and I can see how that's creepy. Um, so she also says uh, in this that Ash reminds her of having him there with her reminds her of everything good and what she wants her world to look like. Which in retrospect, at the end of the episode. And what we saw at the end of last episode, where Ash kills Culber, mm-hmm. that that's really, really, you know, uh, portentous. Let's say mm-hmm. there's a big twist in that that the audience knows about that the character doesn't. Burnham also, in her opening montage, has an execution before breakfast. Yes, where some people have been convicted of having uh, treasonous thoughts against their empress, and so they're beamed out into space. She also gets a message from Saru. Prime Saru, yeah. From, yeah. And they're talking about the progress of the mission, and we learn they're both hiding information from each other. Right. Because mm-hmm. Saru asks, have you met any Kelpians? And she's like, nope. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and meanwhile, Saru is hiding from her the fact that Culber has been killed. By, they think, Stamets. By Stamets, they think. And yeah. so it's, and he's right. That would, and they're actually both right. Sharing this information with the other would distract them from what they need to do. Right, mm-hmm. right. Although, if she, if she'd known about Culber, would she might have suspected Ash? Probably not. Yeah, Probably I, not, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. She didn't have any kind of clue that he was really a double agent or anything like that. That yeah, he was, she's she's got the love goggles on for him right now. Yep, that's right. And, and then at after that scene, then we get the opening, like the. The opening teaser for this episode is 15 minutes long. Yeah, that's like probably one of the longest teasers ever. <laughs> yeah. I was a little surprised. And part of the reason is because all this is a prelude to the main plot device of this episode, which, as I mentioned, the orders that they get to destroy the the resistance on this planet and the Klingon resistance leader whose codename is Firewolf. Now, a couple of things that... That was a web browser, right? Firewolf? Yeah, yes, my yeah. Firewolf browser, yeah. Um, oh, I, thought that was a, I thought that was a, a Starfighter or something. <laughs> yes, or a, a movie starring Clint Eastwood where he steals a uh, Russian mind-controlled uh, jet. Spe- uh, jet. Yep. Thank you. A couple of things with this episode, watching it now, uh, knowing what I know from the end of the season, this first season, is Lorca in this episode, and the things he says and the things he does... Gain a new significance in retrospect. Mm-hmm. What we what we see of Tyler, we that kind of gets clarified by the end of the episode. We 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 have his situation clarified, but we also have throughout this episode references to the Terran Emperor. And to remember, as I had to remind myself, we didn't know who the Terran Emperor was until the end of this episode. Correct. When she shows up on the bridge, and in a hologram, and, in a hologram, right, and that they call her the emperor not empress partially as a way to hide the that fact if they'd said empress we might have gotten it 
And and that's there's precedent for that in various human cultures, like in mm-hmm. ancient Egypt when Hatshepsut was pharaoh, she was not queen. That was not her title. Her title was pharaoh. Right. Mm-hmm. And she would even right. wear the little fake ceremonial beard. Wasn't there a Polish uh, woman who was called king uh, as well? Uh, what was mm-hmm. her name? There was a there was a Polish king. She had the title of king, but she was a woman. Uh, the woman for whatever king. Reason. Yeah, uh, I have to look that up. <laughs> I know about it because of the in the in the game Civilization uh, that she's in it. So <laughs> that's how I, I'm not you know all that. Somebody, somebody like, who's more of a civilization civilization geek will know it probably. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. I, I'm not knowing this because I'm super intellectual and know things. So it's because there, I played the game. <laughs> there's also a, a Battlestar Galactica episode called The Woman King. Oh, okay, okay, yes. So uh, Lorca tells Burnham she's got to kill the this resistance group uh because they've got a bigger you know mission ahead of them and she's like really resistant no pun intended um but he tells her sometimes the end justifies terrible means and this is where we're starting to see that Lorca mirror universe personality really starting to assert itself here also maybe he's been through all so much of the torture agonizer chamber for long enough that he's starting to get a little desperate yeah, he he's really a um he's really a tough guy. I mean, <laughs> being willing to knowing, I mean, he's from this universe. He knows what those tortured agonizer boxes do to you, and he's yeah. willing to just live in one of them for the sake of this mission. I mean, wow, how yeah. how much tougher can you get? Yes. Yeah, well, it, it, it's, it almost pushes believability a, a oh, bit. Oh, it does push believability <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it, it's interesting, though, where, where Burnham says, you know, well, you, everything you're going through is, is obviously affecting your, your mind. And, of course, we're thinking, oh, well, at this point, we're thinking, oh, well, Lorca, you know, the Starfleet captain, he's starting to lose it because of, of this torture. And, no, it's the other way around. It's his his mask is slipping. Yes. The, 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 his mask as prime Lorca is slipping and real Lorca is starting to come out. Right. Uh, so Burnham figures out a, she has a plan for how to save the resistance uh, to be, because she wants to figure out she wants to go down and find out how does a, a Klingon end up leading all of the major Federation races in an alliance of hope, she says. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and this that's is a little. Yeah, it's a little dumb. <laughs> it's like, no, you save the resistance because it's the right thing to do. Uh, like, like, because she wants to go back to the prime universe and bring that with her to figure out how to make peace with the Klingons. Yeah, we, we saw how, it's like, Michael, we've seen how your efforts to apply knowledge from other cultural contexts of how to relate <laughs> to the Klingons has not really worked out well for you in the past. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Look, just figure out how to save them, then get back to your own universe and be done with it. How are the Klingons working with the Tellarites and the Andorians and the Vulcans? Desperation. Desperation. Yeah. Right. So make them desperate. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that's the way they, yeah. It didn't work out last time either, though. Yeah. So her plan is, is for her and, and Ash to, to beam down alone without a landing party and not to blast them from orbit. Uh, what's that line from Aliens? <laughs> nuke them from orbit. They decide mm-hmm. not to nuke them from orbit. They beam down and surrender. And then, of course, the big reveal is that Firewolf is Vogh. And we have this scene, and Tyler is a little, you know, Seeing himself, he's, he's a getting messed up. progressively more freaked out. Yes, is he's losing it uh, now. To determine if Burnham really does come in peace, they use they call in the, the someone they call the Prophet to mm-hmm. tell if she's lying, and it's Sarek with the beard, 
and he does a mind meld on her. He sees her actual Prime Universe memories, but doesn't tell anyone, but just vouches for her. Yeah, he says he sees a world full of promise and hope, and she means us no harm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it's and, curious and, that he doesn't they reveal. Would, they would yeah. take that as meaning, I see a world of promise and hope for us. Right. Right. For the future. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it, that is interesting that, it, that that he doesn't tell them for some whatever reason. Well, it, it would kind of complicate matters <laughs> to say, <Yeah>. right. <laughs> Guess what? She's not even from our universe. <laughs> yeah. And so he but what what's it to him? Like he he should doesn't the boss there need to know? So he has a reason for not revealing it. He you know very instantly determines that he needs to keep this well, secret for her. The, the fact that he sees himself or the mirror, the prime universe version of himself raising her as a, as his mm-hmm. daughter. I mean, that, that's probably a good reason right there to say, uh, what's going on here? <laughs> it's, I mean, is it an emotional reaction or a logical reaction? That's the thing. I would, I mean, it could be both, but I would think it's, it's certainly justifiable logically. Mm-hmm. What Firewolf Vok has asked is, is she trustworthy? And yes, yes, she is. And that's what I'm going to tell him. And I'll add just enough supporting detail that there's a lot of promise and hope here. She really means us well, but I'm not going to complicate it beyond that because he doesn't need to know beyond that. And he's probably trying to figure it out for himself. How is this possible? And meanwhile, they're not getting bombed from orbit. So let's let's keep things on a good good level. Yeah. (laughs) So in the the negotiations and the discussions, Ash, meanwhile, like we said, he has a flashback to his torture and uh his his reassignment of species uh surgery and, and other activity with Lowell. Yeah. yeah. And then attacks Mirror Vok uh as Vok is explaining how Klingons came to work with others. And because the reaction is is no, remain Klingon. That was the whole justification Takuma. for the war. The Kuv- right, to Kuvma. We need to be separate from other races, not working with them like this Vok is. So you have therefore betrayed you, you who are who who is me has betrayed and mental break. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Exactly. And and other than saying no, Michael stands back and totally lets him attack Vok. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's like why aren't you intervening? This goes on for some time. Right. Like did, I don't think she has her phaser at this point, but she she doesn't. But she could still grab. Him. He doesn't have a phaser either. He yeah. she could grab him and restrain him or try right. to. That would at least show the other people there she is not approving of his actions. Right. The, yeah, after yeah, she he's does, restrained. Yeah. Yeah. She does say something later, but yeah, but he, he of course, yeah. gets beat up by Volk, so. And it's isn't it Sarek who stops them from killing him uh, at this point, right? Isn't it? I forget now. Uh, yeah, I think he, because he essence. said something like, yeah. you know, I, I can't vouch for him, but she's the one that, that we need to listen to, basically. She's the one who's... Right innocent or not innocent but she's the one that means us no harm yeah right meanwhile so so the plan is that she's gonna let them have time to evacuate and then she's going to photon torpedo their one very small base (laughs) that they that they have had hidden under active camouflage for two years meaning a cloaking device i guess Mm -hmm. yeah and the thing she wanted in exchange now i thought because she's got a floppy disk with the information about the Defiant on it. And she's telling him, but I'm going to want something in return for letting you go. And and the thing she wanted in return, I thought, would be get this information to the to the Discovery. 
But no, the thing she wants in return is tell me how you all work together, which is dumb. And <laughs> and then they also give her a little data pyramid that contains information on their listening outpost, but it's encrypted. And they say, by the time you decrypt this, we'll have gotten everybody away from these listening mm-hmm. posts. And that's evidence she can use to make it look like her mission was a success. Right. They're telling them that their rebel base is on Dantooine, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, which is, has the same results in this case. Uh, so, meanwhile, back on Discovery, Tilly and Saru have been talking about Stamets and what to do about him. And Tilly convinces Saru that medical science, the standard medical science, is not going to help Stamets. Only her knowledge of the mycelial network stuff is is going to save him, and convinces him to let her experiment on him. With the mycelial spores. Yeah, so they juice him with spores. There's a bunch of hand-wavy stuff about his brain is is doing strange things with the interdimensional internet, and we need to give him more (laughs) spores so the rest of his brain can come back online. Right. But she ends up killing him, essentially. Essentially. Also, she's got this one line in there. Now, she says this is a spore issue, which means I'm the one who's qualified to treat him here. And at one point, but she so undermines that when she says fungi are the only organism with the biological aptitude to link death with life. And I'm going, (laughs) no, um, (laughs) that would be every organism and certainly every organism that eats another organism like us. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well, there's also a weird moment where she like she interrupts this effort to save the 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 guy who can get them back to the universe by like networking for a better job. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, am I doing a good enough job that you can recommend me for the command training program? Which Saru would say <laughs> that's like inappropriate at this moment. Let's talk about this after we've got everything fixed. Which is kind of what he says. Yeah, he says if we get back to our universe, I'll consider it. Yeah. <laughs> but Stamet suffers heart failure and they bring in people to into the reaction cube where he is to restart his heart and they've got one of those it's like the little handheld device you use to jump start your cars these days. Mm-hmm. He yep. they've got one for his heart. They bring it in, they put him on him and they can't restart his heart. And I'm just in my mind shouting with Gene Wilder for young, from Young Frankenstein, hearts and kidneys are tinker toys. by the 24th century slap a new heart in him if you got to i mean this is nothing he should not be dying of heart failure here well right and then after he dies of heart failure they just leave everybody leaves except tilly and they've just got this dead guy in the reaction cube there (laughs) well i love too where the device they use to restart his heart is basically just a future version of an aed even hook up to the same spot as you do with an aed Right, that technology you know, has not advanced at all. In the only only difference is that having years. a box that's set next to the person, it's actually all in one piece, for, you know, right. with a cable connecting the two parts. That's it. Yeah, it's just, yeah. So uh, back on the Shenzhou, the ISS Shenzhou, Michael confronts Tyler, and he's finally able to say that he's Valk, and he he has a complete break. And I like how the actor. Because again, we didn't, you know, until now, this, these last two episodes, we didn't know they were the same character. Mm-hmm. His voice changes when his he's that the Valk is emerging, and, yep. and when, I like when he's how speaking he speaking Klingon. Yeah, 
Yeah. And and it's so it's interesting to see that come out. I like how he does that here. Um, I I think the actor does a good job. Well, and and also how he acts, because at first he's still he's still confused. He's not sure what's going on. He's trying to figure out. But then you see through the scene, he's getting more and more confident and more and more cocky and more and more folk. Yes. And so it's his his whole personality is changing through the scene. And I, I think he did a really good job with that. And his diction changes, like the way he speaks, even in English, becomes yeah. more formalized, like like an alien who would be speaking in a formalized uh, English. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I kind of like the way they, they handle that. Uh, he ends up attacking Burnham, and she's only saved when Slave Saru comes in and <laughs> flings him across the room, which is awesome. Uh, I, I, that's And that was set up earlier in the episode by twice having Saru come into her quarters unannounced. Yes. Which is, I guess, I mean, I I was like, so shouldn't you ring first before you come in? But I I think in some, I I, I know that I, I once saw, a, you know, a, a, a piece about how they train butlers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, and one of the things they do today in butler training is treat absolute discretion. So if you go into your employer's bedroom and someone is in bed with him, you don't acknowledge that fact as a butler. You just go in and you interact and you find what you need to do. And if if your your employer tells you something about, oh, please get us breakfast, oh, what would you like? And both of you, you know, but otherwise you just don't acknowledge anything is going on. Yes. And I I guess that could that kind of discretion, of course, would be expected of the captain's personal servant, uh, Saru. And so maybe that's why he gets to just walk into her quarters unannounced. Right. As he does when she's, ha- you know, uh, romancing with uh, uh, with Ash earlier in the episode. But they've set that up. They have him come in to do her daily ablutions, and they've had him come in w- when she was romancing with Ash, and that's all a setup for him coming in unannounced to save her when Ash is attacking her. Right, right. right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it could also be part of that, the, the personalization, the, like, no, the, he's so beneath notice that he doesn't even have a name, therefore, you wouldn't, you wouldn't ask, you know, expect a robot servant to come in right. and, you know, or that sort of thing. I suppose that's possible, yeah, too. Yeah, but I, that's misunderstanding the situation. I mean, frankly— yeah. In in the ancient in in the ancient world, people knew when you had slaves. Slaves have ears, yeah. And you, there are some things you don't say in front of them, and some things you don't expose them to, because right. they can gossip and it can get out to your enemies in the Senate, and then you can have a big problem when you're Calpnius Calpurnius Piso and you're being tried for an attempt to assassinate the emperor. <laughs> right. And so, so this is just again understand the thing you're criticizing right right so he uh yeah so so he's saved by she's saved by saru and her guards who are outside the door also see and so there's no way that for her to prevent ash from being hauled away for execution because the law is clear if you attack the captain you are immediately sentenced to death and uh meanwhile before that can happen we see stamets who is apparently not dead yet uh, in the mycelial network, meeting his mirror universe counterpart, who says something to the effect of, "Oh, you're finally here. The great. We need to get to work. That so, that sort of thing." So interesting there. Mm-hmm. 
Burnham is uh, going to execute Tyler in the same way that we saw prefigured earlier in the episode mm-hmm. by beamed into space, uh, where in this case, she does it. Per- I'm going to do it personally because it was personal. She beams him into space and he's immediately picked up by Discovery. I'm kind of wondering, so is Discovery cloaked? Like, how is the the other ships around there not seeing Discovery? Well, they had contact with Discovery previously. So Discovery is, they know Discovery is there in the ridiculously cluttered debris field. Right. Right. That's why they had Tilly impersonate Captain Killy. Right, Mm -hmm. right. But when they went to this planet, Discovery must have come along with them and is just hanging out there. It's, it's very weird. The planet or yeah. something or there, I, yeah. I think I think people in the mirror universe see only what they want to see because <laughs> they see. they <laughs> don't see they don't see that Ash is immediately beamed away. Yeah, and they don't see when Ash and Burnham have beamed down to the planet. They don't see them surrender. And yeah, they don't right. see them go to the uh, to the invisible camp that turns visible and remains visible, and yes. they they don't. It's like, aren't you monitoring your captain on a dangerous mission to meet this rebel leader? Right, no. right, yeah. There's you know, a but couple when, of holes when, there. When being contrarian to the, the those in charge means your death sentence, you t- generally tend to just keep your mouth shut and do it's what possible. you're supposed to do, and and that's it. <laughs> Or find it an opportunity to betray her to her superior. Right. right. But in any case, he's beamed onto Discovery. He's He's been used as the uh, the, the bowl to carry the USS Defiant data that, that was uh, Burnham had been sent to get. Uh, and Saru already knows about Ash's betrayal and that he's a mole. You know, he's a, a, a sleeper agent among them. So uh, somehow she had communicated this to them in the interim. Mm-hmm. So we are to assume, I guess. Yeah, and we have at least seen her communicating with the Discovery. Yeah. The way they did it earlier in the episode was they had Tilly place the call pretending to be Captain Killy, and then she handed the mic over to Saru. Yes, right. right. Uh, so Burnham goes to uh, to Lorca saying, okay, well, I got the data, it's time to leave the Shinzu, and he doesn't want to go yet. Now, we know why he doesn't want to go yet. He's, his plan is still in motion. Uh, but he says it's because they need to make sure that the Defiant data is useful before they give up their access to more classified data. But but like I said, he's waiting actually for the Emperor to show up so he can get close to her and 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 assassinate her. And that's what happens as they're on the ship, uh, the, on the bridge of the Shenzhou, a unseen ship starts firing at the surface of the planet and, and obliterating and, it. And, and yeah, widespread, unnecessary detonations all over a hemisphere of this planet when there was one little hidden base that you had the coordinates to. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, their targeting is really off. <laughs> well, you, you know, if, if you want to get rid of, you know, like, say, a bed bug infestation, you just burn down the house. I mean, <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then that's when we have the appearance of the emperor on the uh, in a hologram on the bridge, and it's Emperor Giorgio, and uh, that's the the big reveal at the end of the episode that we're supposed to oh, and we all did went whoa, it's Giorgio's back. So yeah. uh, and we didn't we didn't realize the awesomeness that was coming with that reveal, <laughs> yes, the awesomeness <laughs> of Emperor Giorgio. <laughs> so that's how it ends, uh, Father Corey. Any final thoughts? Nope, nothing else. Jimmy. I found myself, so we had a lot of Stamets in the spore cube in this kind of laid back position with his, with his arms exposed. 
And we, we, so we get a lot of footage of the shunts that they put in Mm -hmm. his arms to interface him with the ship. And I, I just, I've always found those interesting, but really annoying because the, I mean, if those things are to let him have mycelial stuff flowing into and out of him, we have shunts now that are far less intrusive than those things. And those things are put in a stupid part of his body because, (laughs) you. I mean, not only is it, are are your forearms not central distribution nodes for things in your body? If you want spores moving around in you, you don't think, put them in, let's put them in the forearms. Right. Those are an extremity, and so they're not Mm -hmm. centralized. But also, we have all these muscles and tendons in our forearms that help us use those useful devices called our hands. And (laughs) they've basically taken all of those out of him and apparently replaced them with with something that's a robotic equivalent. But... Why? Just put a shunt near a major artery and be done with it. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, like like they have shunts today, like somewhere in the in the in the torso, you know, just a yeah. little tube that connects. That's all it needs to be. Yeah. Because it looks cooler to have him just bare his forearms and get jacked up instead of having to take, you know, something, you know, Johnny mnemonic style into the back of your <laughs> yeah. head or something yeah, like that's that. What it, you know? That's what should be like right in the back of the neck. That would have been awesome. <laughs> all right. So I think that does it for this episode. Uh, We want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Lynn F., Suzanne S., Dennis S., Fonseca B., and Mary C. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. Now's a great time to become a StarQuest patron, thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter. When you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com slash give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor to support all our shows, including this one, making your gift go even further. And we're more than halfway to our goal of $2,000 in new monthly pledges, so why don't you help us close the gap? If you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now is the time. Visit sqpn.com slash give today. So that's it from us. What did you think of The Wolf Inside? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash starquestmedia, or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the original series episode, The Galileo 7, which is a classic. Until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thanks, Tom. Jimmy Yakin, thank you as well. Thank you, live long and prosper, and always remember Steve Martin's grandmother's advice, criticize things you don't know about. (laughs) And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, I see a world bursting with potential, and a child molded by wisdom, and a seemingly impossible depth of human compassion.